without data, you're just another person with an opinion. Once you understand that, you're like, oh, okay, I can use data to bring my business to another level. Welcome to Think Beyond, a podcast by Cassette that reframes the way we think about our current reality so we can explore the possibilities that set us on a more exciting path tomorrow. This series is co-hosted by me, Kat Wiles, Chief Strategy Officer at Cassette. And me, Tracy Follows, futurist and author of The Future of You. Rama Sau is a data scientist at Cassette, and she's the founder of the cultural analytics blog, The Study. With The Study, Rama helps businesses and brands better understand cultural events in the entertainment industry, whether it's music, art, sports, fashion. She understands it all through data. Now, Rama is also a sitting board member of Montreal's Le Libard, a multidisciplinary contemporary art centre, and she's come to tell us today all about her life in data science. Super excited to have Rama on the show today. She brings such a brilliant perspective, not just as a Gen Zer, um, but so much more in this talk than just talking about data. She'll take us through the role of data in storytelling, culture, crypto, DAOs, NFTs. Go all around the horn with her today. Shall we hear what Rama's got to say? Yes, please. Can't wait. Welcome, Rama. Well, I'm so excited to have you here today as part of the team at Cassette. I'd love it if you could share with our listeners a bit about yourself. So my name is Rama and I'm a data scientist by trade, but I'm obsessed with like culture and creativity. I think a year and a half ago, I decided to start a blog that was called The Study, where I would discuss basically cultural events through data and strategy. And from that, someone at Cassette found me. And so I help strategists and also our creative teams to make better decisions using data. And those decisions can really vary. I think an example that I give a lot would be choosing music for an ad. That was like one of my favorite projects that I did, where we use data to see which kind of song would really resonate with our target audience. And I think the bet worked. And how did you first get interested in understanding culture through data? What was your pathway to get there? So I always have an opinion on everything in life. (laughs) And it's easier to have an opinion when it's backed by data or where you have something to back it. So started out as me arguing with my friends about like which album Drake did had the most impact or... (laughs) which TV show was the best. And then I would try and find data, right? So I'm not a mathematical person at all. I never knew how to code. But once I realized that I just like answering questions using data and not just my opinion, I kind of found a pathway in school, especially that did that. And that was business intelligence and data science. And I also went to Singapore for an exchange when I was in university. And Singapore is really advanced in terms of AI and data science and all of those things. And I actually had three classes in three different fields and all three spoke about data. So I was like, oh, there might be something there. So when I came back, I made the switch during my bachelor's and I started to study that. We're often told that, you know, we've got a choice to make between storytelling or sort of analytical data 
How do you put the two together? I know that you've talked about telling a story with data. How do those two things come together well? My mindset and everything is always explain it to me like I'm five. I just want the person to understand my message at like the simplest level. And I think that's where storytelling comes in with data because data can be, and numbers in general can be scary for some people. So I really make an effort in my blog or even at work to just explain it at the simplest level, even the techniques I use or uh, like my methodology so people understand. And I think that's where the storytelling comes from because uh, I like to think I'm a funny person. So I try to make it interesting and funny for them (laughs) and not as dry. And I think that's where my own storytelling comes from. Have you used data to analyze how funny a person you are? (laughs) (laughs) I should. I know there was an AI bot that was creating by the putty, which is like my favorite website ever, where they told you if you had good taste in music or not. And that was a really controversial bot that was put out. So I think we should do one. Are you funny or not? (laughs) (laughs) I love it. What you talked about data and stories helping you find the answers uh, to questions. Do you also use data and your analysis of culture to start springing up new questions like looking forwards to help propel you forwards? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, in data, there's many ways to look at data, right? There's visualizations, you can build models, you can predict stuff. I think just visualizing is a great step to understand phenomenons in our society. So I'll take an example in the creative industry. I live in Quebec and even in Canada in general, we have grants for artists, let's say, right? And that's another controversial topic because who gets the grants, who doesn't? So one day I just did a visualization of all of the grants that were given out over the past, I want to say five or 10 years. And I just posted that and then people were able to draw their own conclusions, right? And then it became a larger conversation as to how do we give that money out? Who should we give that money out to and who makes those decisions? So sometimes just visualizing something or looking at the numbers can like create like an awareness with people. And then after they can have their own questions and they can start investigating and have more questions. And then we change the world. I love that, that you can use um, data as a way to provoke and spark conversations and move things forwards. Yes, really. That's my goal. Do you think that's done enough in business? I mean, we've heard a lot about big data. Now people feel like they're drowning in data. What advice would you give to some of our listeners about how they could better use data than they are at the moment? So I think a lot of businesses use data in a reactive manner, meaning that when they have a problem, they're like, oh, we need data now to try to fix that problem. But when everything's good and smooth sailing, according to like the leadership team or whatever, there's not really an effort that's made to include data because like everything's going well. Why would we seek another opinion or like external sources to verify our own opinions? So I would like encourage businesses to move from a reactive to proactive when using data. So try to include it in all of your processes across the board. Like data can help in HR, data can help in marketing, can help in literally any field. And then using the data to make better decisions. I always say without data, you're just another person with an opinion. A statistician actually said that quote. 
I think once you understand that, then you're like, oh, okay, I can use data to really fuel my thinking and then bring my business to another level. Do you think brands and businesses are a bit more open to that kind of approach now we've been through the pandemic or or rather the kind of resulting sort of virtual digital survival of the pandemic? Because a, a lot weren't really that open to it when we were doing so much face-to-face and there was a, a situation, where I suppose, where a lot was based on gut instincts. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that, but we didn't necessarily have anything to complement that either. And of course, we were forced into these virtual worlds and Zoom meetings and goodness knows what, when you ended up relying on data to analyze a lot of stuff. Has, has that had an impact or do you think we'll just go back to where we were? I think it's had an impact, but beyond what you're saying, because that's true, I think that through the pandemic, a lot of businesses' budgets shrink, right? It's like, okay, we had $10 million a year to promote this product. Now we have like one. So one year under those extreme circumstances, and this is where we can go back to the reactive, proactive situation, you have to really justify where you put your money and you have to be sure about that. So I think that's where data comes in so you can make a better and more informed decision. Because we're living in a more digital first world now, presumably there is more data or is it just different types of data? I think it's different types. For certain industries, their model really changed, right? So like, for example, hotels, we're not doing as much face-to-face. So you would want to acquire more data to know where your customers want to go and to really spend your marketing budget efficiently. I think that a lot of people have taken that this pandemic and are going to keep a lot of it, but a lot of it is also going to go back to where it was. And we can see it just right now, like people are not wearing masks in restaurants. Everybody thought that people would wear masks until the end of time because they were scared. They're not sanitizing their hands anymore before they eat, you know? So I think we're going to go back to it, but I think the strongest businesses are the ones that are going to succeed the most in the future are going to be able to find this balance between using the new data and like there's new processes they acquired throughout the pandemic. And also keeping the good parts of their previous processes. Yeah, I agree. So we were talking about the pandemic. Has that changed the way that you look at data or? Yeah, definitely. Um, For me and for a lot of people in like the community, let's say, the pandemic years are outliers. So in data, you have outliers. Sometimes you have like your data and you might have some data points that you can't really explain that are really different from what you've seen before, the trends you have. Pandemic is definitely that. So also when we talk to clients or when we work with clients, I always tell them, don't look at a boom during the pandemic or like a big decline during the pandemic as what's happening in your industry because they're really outliers. You need to try to forecast what's going to happen beyond that, which can be difficult. But to do so, you really need to look at the trends that were here before and then just to adapt based on what you know about your industry. And this is where instinct can come in, right? And this is where making your decisions based on previous data, but also using your own personal experience can come in. And something I think we all want to know, (laughs) I know I do. What are your data insights into the upcoming trends, <laughs> um, especially, you know, the brands would be thinking about, because there's so many trends out there at the moment. Mm. I'm not talking about fads. I'm talking about proper trends, increases in certain aspects of things and decreases in others. And But it's always interesting to put the 
data insight overlay or underpinnings to it. So really interested in your thoughts on that, Rama. I think the biggest trend that I see right now and that I think is going to stay just because of data and everything that's being told to us would be related to Web3 and the virtual world. It's impacting so many industries. I know it's like kind of cultural industries or creative industries, so it will be sports, arts, and whatever. But I've seen a lot of applications even before the Web3 era that were very Web3, specifically in the um, supply chain and pharma, because I used to work in pharma a long time ago. That's why I'm like, I think that's the one that's going to stay because it's only evolved during the pandemic. And an example of that would be the NFTs. So the first time I came in contact with the concept of NFTs, and I've just realized that like very recently because it wasn't called NFTs at that time, was when one of my bosses at my previous company, which was a pharma company, was asking us, I've seen this way with blockchain where we can identify each one of our shipments and verify its authenticity with the supplier. And if you think of that concept now, it's an NFT, right? <laughs> but we just didn't know. We just were like, blockchain, that's crazy. So I think that anything that's related to Web3, blockchain, giving back the power to creators or users is something that's really going to stay. And I think my number one data source to explain this would be the trust barometer by Edelman that they put out every year. And they said that there's like a huge decline in trust with the government, huge decline in trust with institutions, with pretty much any kind of authority except the CEOs. They also described that Web3 is a great way to gain trust across like your networks and across people and to build projects with people and removing that kind of barrier that was like, I don't know you, I wouldn't start like a business or a project with you, but with now with blockchain, you can do that. But I feel like that's the one that I would bet on. And as we're careering to or in <laughs> Web 3.0 world, where we've got the blockchain, we've got multiple different layer one protocols. Do you think that there's going to be an increasing role for data in the future and data-driven decisions and insights and more focus on that than there has been today or maybe previously? I think so because I've seen, I'm in a lot of DAOs and a lot of the research DAOs are focused on finding the data that typically businesses or uh, universities or like institutions wouldn't want to see. So I think people are organizing to get their own data to then make better decisions or assess funding or give grants or whatever. I think people want data. I think they're looking for it. I think they just don't know where to start. And DAOs are giving them a chance to come together, have different expertise together, find a question they want to answer and have the resources to do it in-house. So yes. I think we'll see more data. I think we'll see more independent research. A good example of that would be Water and Music. It's a Web3 DAO that focuses on research and music. So anything streams, anything how creators are getting paid, how splits are being done. They actually started their own DAO doing their own research because they knew that, you know, the universals and the, the big label companies, the rock nations, the light nations wouldn't do it, right? So this is where data becomes like a tool for activism, for justice. And that's what I'm really interested in. Action, like we always say, 
It's interesting you say that because as you were speaking, I was thinking about in a DAO format or model, how fast can people make decisions? How, how fast can you take action? Because one of the downsides of a DAO is that because it's so disparate and so flat and everybody uh, is permissionless, so everybody has a kind of say, how does one come to decisions in a DAO? The ones where the decision's the quickest, it depends really on the structure of the DAO, right? So a lot of DAOs, you'll see there's like 10% of the people in the DAO that are actually active. The rest just want to support whatever vision they have. I'm someone like that. I don't have much time, so I'll support a bunch of DAOs. I'll pay my membership. But will I actively participate and do the research? No. But will I vote to know what we're going to tackle in the next month? Absolutely. So depending on the structure, you'll have people that are more invested and some people that are less invested, just as any company, I would say. And those people will really do the work, carry the torch, and the rest just vote on what they need to carry the torch and work on. I know the decision can be long sometimes, but depending on how the DAO is set up, it could be very quick. What do you think is the most overlooked metric in the world in which you work and the application of data to it? I think it's a question of resource, but definitely I call it brand love. So when we do a campaign, we look at, okay, we've got an engagement, impressions and all of that, but we never look at like what people comment under the certain posts or like the reaction to it. And that's like sentiment analysis or social listening. So that's something we've been trying to bring to the clients, having that metric of brand love that people actually love the ads. Or did they just talk about it? Because those are two different things, right? And on the converse, what would you say is the most overrated data metric? So to me, impressions are the most uh, overrated just because impressions depend on the format you use. And they could be used to say that, oh, we should do short format. Or we should do a seven second like spot when really the audience you're looking at wants like an hour long piece of content. So an example for that would also be beauty. I like the TikToks, like the one minute TikTok that shows me like a new beauty trend. But I'm probably going to watch a Get Ready With Me with like Jackie Aina that takes 45 minutes and she talks about her whole entire life. Now, when you look at impressions, the TikTok is going to have more impressions because it's like shorter, it's quicker. But do you want your consumers to be on the TikTok, the one minute piece of contents, or you want them to be on the 45 minute vlog where they engage the whole time? So this is like always a discussion that we have with like creatives and media. And I feel like impressions is just like a metric that's being used a bit falsely and a bit to prove a point <laughs> instead of really what it should be. Well, all the money's built around though, isn't it? When you think about sort of media and buying and selling and trading and exchanging, and it needs kind of reformulating, I guess. Yeah. How do we change the way that data is used operationally? How should we reorganize things so that the data isn't siloed? I think it depends on how it's used. In my mind, if we're using data to build a media plan, you should have a data team in your media division or company that focuses on that. 
For example, me, I use data for creativity. So for creative insights. So I should be with the creatives, with the strategists. I think we should look at the way the data is used. And then after we should build data science or data and AI or analytics teams around that. For example, I think there's a big opportunity at our agency for HR analytics, for automation. You know, we do our uh, hours in a sheet every week. The first week I came in, I was like, we can automate that, guys. And then we could predict how much time we actually spend on a project and we will save money and everybody's going to be happy. I think we should look at use and then you build data science teams that are skilled in that specifically. Because another thing that people think is that a data scientist can do anything. That's not the case. A good data scientist focuses on like two or three techniques that they master. So for example, for me, it would be social listening. I love doing visualizations and I like to do predictive modeling. But don't ask me to do automation and like creating bots and all of that. It won't work. I've tried before. It didn't work. So creating like highly skilled teams around different uses that could be media, HR, creativity, like anything would be the way to go. Maybe we need to start a data DAO. A data DAO. Yeah, that was pretty sure that exists somewhere. We would have to find it. We could make our own data DAO. (laughs) Yeah, we should. Yeah. What's your dream brand to work on? And it could be just a really culturally insightful, amazing brand, or it could be a brand that you think's not fulfilling its potential. So I have two, just because there's one that's already doing something in data and I see it, so I would like to participate in it. And it would be Le Paris Saint-Germain, the soccer team from mm. France. <laughs> they are amazing. They hop on trends that are really relevant to them. So, for example, crypto, they were on it because crypto over-indexes with sports fan. Esports, they were on it. Fashion, they did a collab with a Montreal brand, actually, that's called Trois Paradis, that's super up and coming. So I feel like they have some kind of surveillance as to, okay, this is something we should hop on. This is something we should hop on. And then the second example of a brand I would love to work on would be in fashion. It would be Chanel because it's a a bit of a bordel, like we say in France, so a bit of a mess right now. (laughs) So I would help them understand their landscape, understand better what people want. And then just in a PR optic with everything that happened with the advent calendar, I think it would have been prevented if they understood a bit more the roles of channels and the power of TikTok publicity. <laughs> it's interesting you say that because if you look at someone like Gucci, everything that they're doing in a Web3 world, metaverse, you know, gaming. So the whole mm-hmm. thing they've just launched on like a gaming education, all that, they're building their own platforms, aren't they? And connecting yeah. them all together. And it's becoming an interesting ecosystem. I imagine they're garnering a huge amount of data, well, potentially, from these yeah. cultural pursuits. And it becomes a different kind of asset for the company. You know, that ecosystem, it becomes very valuable. Even Balenciaga is doing a, a good job at that. Prada also is starting. So slowly but surely, fashion companies will understand that their audience and like the Web3 audience is very similar right now, especially since they're both affluent and they want to invest and spend and they want to see brands come in their their space. But I think that brands like Chanel, I know Louis Vuitton did kind of an AR exhibition, mm. but they're really late to the party. And I think it's going to hurt them soon because Gen Z's don't like Chanel bags. 
unfortunately, they want to have those Balenciaga bags that they can buy in Fortnite also. (laughs) So they'll have to get with the program, you know, like Chanel and Louis Vuitton are not as cool as what they were, I want to say, 10, 15 years ago. It's also the rules of engagement around luxury brands. I mean, just look at the disruption, the mashup with um, Balenciaga and Adidas as well that we're seeing on runways and the collision of a pop culture brand with a luxury brand and the, the fusion of different things together. I think Balenciaga are making great strides there. I mean, look at their Yeezy hoodie with Gap, like a try, try way uh, collaboration. Balenciaga is the new Gen Z brand. Even if you look at the people they pick to come at the shows, you'll have a lot of the Euphoria actors. You have the Kardashians. You have the D'Amelios. They're really picking certain people and building that kind of ecosystem that's going to be valuable because these are like the muses of the future, essentially. You know, before we used to have like Kate Moss and like Naomi Campbell. Now we have Alexa Demi, we have Kim Kardashian, you know, we have Kanye West. I just know Chanel and Vuitton right now. If I would ask my 15-year-old sister, do you want a ledger? Do you want a Louis Vuitton bag? Do you want a coach bag? She would pick a ledger and a coach bag. So pricing and the the thing that, oh, I'm buying this like $2,000 bag is not really relevant for them anymore. And I think that's going to change a lot of the game because Chanel and Louis Vuitton, it's pricing discrimination. You want to buy it because you can't have it your whole life. But then you're like, oh, okay, I'm going to buy it today. As a Gen Zer on our show, <laughs> um, talk to us a bit about how Gen Z is different and some of the things that are happening with Gen Z's unique look on the world, which is like not just tearing up the rule book, but I'd say probably setting it on fire. Yeah, I think they're different in a lot of fronts. I think the two main ones that I find that could be alarming for a business would be one, their relationship with a job and work in general. So I want to say that most of my friends have a side hustle and don't really rely on their nine to five for like anything. They're really in the mindset of, I'm going to build this side hustle so that I can leave my job if I want to, stay in it if I want to, find another one if I want to. The relationship with work is is very different. We don't want to stay in a job for 10 years or 15 years. We kind of go with the flow. We want to touch on different topics, try different things. And a lot of people are realizing that the side hustle allows them to do that. The second thing is activism and authenticity. They're really uh, bullshit-proof, the Gen Zs. You know, they don't want those press releases about we're going to plant one tree every time you, you, you buy something or whatever. They'll call you out if you try to insert yourself in some space where you, you're not welcomed in a way. You could see it with just the pride celebrations, you know, the discourse that I see online. For pride, it's not about pride. It's about businesses trying to hijack pride. <laughs> Gen Z is exposing them. So I think brands are going to have to be much more careful and be much more un- authentic and transparent if they want to market to that segment and to those audiences. Great. Thank you so much, Rama. I feel That's like we've good. gone all round the horn. Discussion <laughs> right, today. Good. That's brilliant, Rama. Great. I think people will have lots of action points that they can take from that because not only is it 
inspiring. It's very action orientated what you've been able to uh, share with people. So thank you so much for coming on. Oh, uh, thank you so much. We love action. <laughs> we do. <laughs> Always. <laughs> I think Cassette are pretty lucky to have Rama on board with all that intel and all that insight and all of her experience doing all the sort of cultural pursuits she does and having, as she would say herself, an opinion and a voice on all of it. Fantastic. Absolutely. She keeps us all on our toes. I'm sure that's the truth. Well, thank you so much to Rama and thank you to our listeners for tuning into another episode of Think Beyond. Think Beyond is a podcast by Cassette that's hosted by me, Kat Wiles. And me, Tracy Follows. We'll be back soon with another episode. If you'd like to learn more about the series or about any of our guests, please visit the Cassette website at cassette.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow us, share the episode, and of course, leave us a generous five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Think Beyond is produced by Max Collins and Katie Jensen of Vocal Fry Studios. Mm -hmm.